Let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll begin our message. Sweet Jesus, thank you for blessing us uh, for the last two evenings, and I'm praying for a double portion of your Spirit this evening. I can't do what these people need. I don't have what they need, but you can. And so, God, I pray that you would speak. I pray that you would bind all the forces of darkness, and I pray that you would speak with power, conviction, and clarity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, what is it that gives us hope as a human race? Um, how is God going to make all things right? What it's going to take to do that? And tonight we're also going to look at the provision of man after they fell. We alluded to this last night, if you remember from Genesis chapter 3, the fact that whenever Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from God, and they also were separated even from each other. The first instance of marital strife happened in the Garden of Eden at the fall. Uh, Adam is deflecting and blaming his wife. His wife is deflecting and blaming the serpent. It's not looking very good. Sin does that. It drives wedges of separation. And Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, speaks into this space. In Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2, says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. And what's implied here is the fact that sin causes the separation. Now, some people on a cursory reading this may think that God runs from us when we sin, but that's not what happens. When we sin, we are pushing ourselves away from God. Do you understand the difference? It's a big, big difference. And we saw that even in Genesis 3 last night, that when Adam and Eve sinned and God came to greet them in the garden, what did Adam and Eve do? They ran, right? They, they were afraid. They hid themselves. And so this is what sin does. It builds these walls of separation. So here's where things went wrong. When we sinned, we separated ourselves from God. And since God is our true source of life, we are doomed for death. Right? That's the consequence of that decision. But God is not happy with the current state of things. And he addresses this uh, in just a moment. But look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. It says that for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what is a wage? A wage is what you deserve as a result of the works that you have performed. And all of our works lead to death. In fact, in Isaiah, we're told that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We bring nothing to the table in our broken and fallen state, but yet God still sees something of value in us, which is what's, I think that's just so amazing. So what is due and owed because of the works that we perform is death, and that's the logical result of separation from God. But God's had enough of that by the time we get to the book of Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8, God says to let them build me a sanctuary. Why? that I may dwell among them. Now, do you think that addresses the separation problem? What do you think? Absolutely. If God wants to dwell among us, that implies He's trying to get rid of the separation, okay? And so, God wants to be restored to fellowship with His people, and the first step is to give them something that will show them what it's going to cost to achieve that reunion and to help them see what their role is going to be as well. So there's something that happens. There are multiple things that happen in the sanctuary service, right? In the rites and ceremonies of the sanctuary service that will prepare the people to be reunited with God. It's going to teach us lessons on what God himself is going to have to do to be reunited with his people. We're told this in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 9, that you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, speaking of Jesus. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So the Bible says that Jesus does have hatred for something, and it's sin. He hates sin because sin is what separates him from the people he loves so much. And beloved, God has a big problem on his hands. The very thing that God hates the most is living inside of the people that He loves the most. Are you understanding? God's got a big problem here. What I hate the most is living inside of what I love the most. So I don't want to destroy the people. I want sin out of their lives. I want them to be free from that so that when I deal with sin, it's not going to touch them. This is what God is struggling with. Okay, this is his big challenge. How do we separate the object of his love from the object of his hatred? It's going to require very careful surgery, and that surgery happens in the sanctuary. 
There are things that are taught and observed and done in the sanctuary that are going to help to cause the separation from sin, to eliminate the separation between God and man. Okay? So the very place that God asked to be built so that he could be reunited with his people, right? God said, let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And the surgery is going to happen in the very place that God said, build this so I can be with you once again. So it should be clear already then that we need to pay very close attention to the sanctuary because it shows us how we'll be reunited with God once again. So here's kind of a mock-up of the actual sanctuary service. And I won't be able to point, I can, you can kind of see a little red laser beam here. But in the layout of the sanctuary service, there were articles of furniture that all served a purpose, right? So you had the front gate, okay, the, fr- the front entrance. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then you had the bronze altar. That's where they actually sacrificed the animal, where they burned the sacrifice, you know, the animal that had been sacrificed. They burned it there as an offering. Then they had the bronze laver here that was full of water for the priest to wash and so forth when they entered into the actual sanctuary that had a, a candlestick. It had a table of bread, and then there was an altar of incense here, and on, there was a veil that separated the most holy place from the holy place. And that, that was a place that people could not go, the most holy places. a very holy and sacred space that could only be entered once a year, and even before that happened, there were ceremonies for that. And we'll cover that in a future message together. We're not going to deal with that tonight. But that's kind of the big picture of the furniture and how things were arranged in the sanctuary service. Okay? So just kind of give you a big picture of that. But then, uh, after we get out of that section there, I want to go to Leviticus chapter 1 and talk about what happened. What were those sacrifices that took place in the sanctuary? Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When anyone brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. We'll come back to that point. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So if we go back two spots here, two slides here, they would sprinkle that blood of that sacrifice actually on this veil, on the altar and on this veil. And it's very fascinating because let's give an example of what somebody went through. Let's say your name is Bob and you lived in this Hebrew sanctuary uh, neighborhood, if you will. And let's say you lived on the north, the south, the east, or the west, any of these tents here, when somebody sinned, they would actually have to take basically kind of the walk of shame from their tent all the way down around the edge of the tabernacle, and they would come to the gate here. And just imagine, when you walk out of your tent and you've got a lamb with you, you're not taking your dog for a walk, right? Everybody knows Bob sinned. And as they're watching Bob and surmising in their mind what he did and what went on and all of that stuff, Bob is going to have to just tune that out and he goes to the sanctuary. And when Bob gets there, he confesses over the animal, not to the priest. He confesses over the animal what he has done. And the animal will now kind of be the embodiment of his sin. He's confessing what he has done and transferring that to the animal. And then Bob kills the animal himself. The priest will not do this. The priests take care of all the messy stuff after the fact and burn the thing on the altar, but he has to take its life himself. Can you imagine your prized possession, right? Many of these animals were domesticated and lived with them, and you're taking your prized possession and you have to take its life because of what you have done. It suffers because of what you have done. And so he confesses over the animal, he kills the animal, and the priest catches the blood in a bowl and walks into the holy place of the sanctuary and sprinkles that blood. He puts some on the altar and he sprinkles blood on the veil. Now, if you were God looking from the end of the sanctuary, right, he was, his presence was actually found in the most holy place. That's why people couldn't go in there, right, except for one day a year. And even that, they had special offerings they did for that particular time. But God himself dwelt between the cherubim. It says in Psalm 80 and verse 1 that you who dwell between the cherubim shine forth. We alluded to this actually last night that Lucifer was one of those covering cherubs to begin with, but was cast out of heaven. 
So God was dwelling, his presence is found in the most holy place. And as God looks through the veil, out of the court of the sanctuary to the front gate, he sees Bob who has sinned. But whenever that blood is sprinkled on the veil on his behalf, now when God looks from his perspective towards Bob, there's something covering him. What is that? There's blood. God now sees that Bob is covered, right? That his sins have been covered and atoned for. If you ever heard the phrase atonement, this is what's happening here. Two parties are now being reunited that once were at odds with one another. God is bringing atonement. He's bringing cleansing and forgiveness for Bob's sins. But what preceded that was Bob confessing. But God is trying to do something through this process to help Bob and you and I understand if we had lived in that sanctuary economy. We don't anymore because of Jesus. But in that economy, it would teach us to see sin in the way that God sees sin, that it's messy, that it's gruesome, that it's painful, and that it leads to death. Does that make sense? God was using the sanctuary service to help us to see sin in the way that he sees sin. This wasn't even about animals. That wasn't the point. This was an act of faith in what Jesus would do. This is what God is trying to do, to separate, right? Because if you realize how painful and gross this is, you're going to be less inclined to do the things that would lead to you having to kill an animal, right? It's the same type of idea here. So remember a friend of mine was telling the story that he was preaching a series of meetings in Canada and they were driving through the back roads of Canada in the middle of the night and a deer comes out in the road and they smack into the deer. It went up over the car and fell back behind them. And it's the middle of the night. There's no one driving at this stage in these country roads. They get out of the car and it's like somebody shook a snow globe and there's fur just floating in the air. And as Jeffrey walks around and sees this deer on the road, it's gasping for life and he feels terrible. And he thinks to himself, like, I can't just leave this thing here. And his intention was to try to, you know, put the thing out of its misery. So he looks for a rock. And when the time comes to do what would be doing this animal a favor, he can't do it. I can't take this thing's life. Like, even though I would be doing it a favor, I can't do that. But guys, that's not what's happening in the sanctuary service. God is not doing, you know, not but God, but Bob is not doing a favor to this animal by taking its life. He's ending an innocent life because of what he has done. There's a big difference here. You understanding? Tremendous difference, right? Not to do it a favor, but to punish it for something that he did. And again, the sanctuary service is teaching us something about the plan of salvation, of God's desire to save humanity and to help us recognize that sin is not something to trifle with. Sin is not something to play games with. It's messy, it's painful, and it leads to death and loss. So God is not some blood-hungry tyrant. The idea was to help us feel what sin is about, and that's something we don't naturally feel because in our natural fallen flesh, we kind of like it, and we don't think about the long-term consequences. We do us, we get ours, but then we feel shame, then we feel regret, then we feel self-hatred, right? And we work, we just live this kind of miserable experience doing things that feel good for a season, but have long-term deleterious effects, right? Painful, difficult effects. And God's trying to help us see, hey, you don't want to play with this. This leads to harm. And if you had to kill an animal every time you did something a day, maybe you would think through this before you did it, right? Now, I'm not advocating for animal sacrifices today, but the point is something does have to suffer when we sin. And the fact that you don't see it in that moment doesn't negate that reality. Are you, are you with me tonight? So God wanted them to kind of get their heads into that space. Okay, That's the idea of the surgery, to make us see sin the way that he sees sin. And if we saw how gruesome and nasty it was, we would part ways with it. Sin is that kind of abusive relationship that we just can't find ourselves leaving. Right? We keep going back even though we know it's not helpful for us. We keep going back even though we know it's not helpful for us. We just can't get off the cycle. God's trying to drive a wedge in there and say, hey, this is hurting you. You deserve better than this. You deserve a better life than what you're living right now. Let me love you. Let me heal you of this and remove this shame and this painful difficulty and loss from your life. This is what God is seeking to do through the sanctuary service. In Leviticus 17, 11, he says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, 
And I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So blood is the source of life, right? And it's reflective of this truth that blood will have to be shed to give us eternal life, to cleanse the death that we deserve, to cover that sin debt, and to give us eternal life. Hebrews chapter 9, the author of Hebrews picks up on this idea of what was happening in Leviticus in the Old Testament sanctuary service and makes an application for you and I today in the gospel. They say, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is how much remission? None. None. Blood has to be shed, okay? For our sins to be cleansed, something has to pay. That's an eternal reality. For our sins to be cleansed, something has to pay. Us, right, or in their stage, an animal, or, as we're about to see, the good answer of the gospel. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And the wages of that sin is death. So blood is the only payment for the wages of sin, which is lawlessness. And so the priests brought their blood to the veil, right, the blood that was shed of that animal that you killed yourself, they brought that blood to the veil, which was right in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And what was inside of the Ark of the Covenant? Does anybody know? It was the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And the Bible has identified sin as lawlessness, a discarding of those moral principles, right, spitting in the face of and rejecting those moral principles. And so the very place where they sprinkled that blood was right in front of where the law was held. Does that make sense? Signifying the atonement that's being given for you and for me in Jesus. And the ironic thing, a very interesting thing is when Jesus dies, Matthew's account tells us this, there was an earthquake. And in the earthquake, something happens in the sanctuary. The veil of the temple that separates the holy place and the most holy place is torn from top to bottom. To make it clear, this was not man's doing. What God was saying is the sanctuary is closed for business. The real lamb is hanging outside of Jerusalem. The true fulfillment of all these types and symbols is dying for you in this very moment. This type is no longer needed on earth. Okay? So, and the Apostle Paul actually comments on this and says that that veil represented the flesh of Jesus. Jesus himself was torn for us to find that atonement, right? We now have access behind that veil into the presence of God because of Jesus. Amen? Hebrews chapter 10 tells us this, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. The author of Hebrews is implying kind of the laborious nature of the old sacrificial system on earth. They had to do it continually, year after year, but it didn't get the job done, because if it did, you wouldn't keep offering it. Does that make sense? It was a type, it was a picture, but it wasn't the real deal. It was to prepare us to receive the real deal who was to come. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, right? If it was working permanently, they wouldn't keep doing it. For the worshipers once purified would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins, Okay, those sacrifices didn't have value in themselves. They were an act of faith towards the true sacrifice that was to come. And in our case, that has come. Okay, listen to verse 10. But by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the earthly sanctuary services, of what they were offering an animal, Jesus is a fulfillment of that. Jesus has died on behalf of humanity to bring atonement between us and God, to clear our debt to the law of our transgressions, and for us to be able to live a new life and to receive eternal life. His sacrifice is the only true and perfect price that can be paid for humanity. And the ironic thing is, if you were to have a higher up view, like like uh, from, from a a ceiling perspective of sorts of the sanctuary service, the very shape of the most important articles of furniture is the cross. 
The whole thing was about Jesus. Everything that happened in the sanctuary service was teaching about Jesus, which means that there is value in learning about the sanctuary and the services that happened because it's going to help you better understand what Jesus has done and is doing right now. Does that make sense? Right? It gives us the whole playbook of the plan of redemption. We're focusing on one point this evening. We'll, we'll come back to this in a future meeting and unpack even more. But everything about sanctuary is talking about Jesus. Okay? God was showing what would take place hundreds of years later. And by looking at the shadow, you get some details, but it's a vague picture. It's kind of like looking at a little peephole to get an idea of what's going on. And the shadow of the Old Testament sanctuary was the same way. The New Testament tells us that the shadow was fulfilled in Jesus. And we know this based upon what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Same language that was used in Leviticus chapter 1, a lamb without blemish. And Peter's saying Jesus was that lamb without blemish. The whole reason why they had to have a perfect sacrifice in the Old Testament was because a truly perfect sacrifice was coming in the New Testament. Amen? Amen. Jesus being the fulfillment. Jesus is the lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist proclaimed in John chapter 1 and verse 29. Now, we don't have to do what Bob did, right, when he took his lamb to the sanctuary anymore, because Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Today, we go to the cross, and what do we see? We see the Prince of Heaven, naked, bruised, bleeding, tortured, and dying on the cross. The irony is we have the Creator being assassinated by the created. And just like that man in Leviticus, this can make us sick at what our sins have caused. And the more you look at Jesus upon the cross, the less you want to trifle and mess around with sin. And that's the point, guys. Jesus is trying to separate us from this abusive relationship and bring us into a true knowledge of who He is, how He does life, and that we are already loved and accepted in Christ. But the question now is, why would Jesus do this? You ever thought about that? I mean, we're thankful that he did do it, but why did he do it, and what did it cost? Well, the remainder of our time this evening is going to be addressed this very issue. We're told in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, I'm so thankful for that. We talked about that in the first night, right? I was not looking for God personally, but I'm so thankful for the fact that God came looking for me. And it's changed my life for the better. But this implies that Jesus saw value in what he was seeking. Right? You don't go looking for stuff unless you think it's worth looking for it. You ever had things that you stopped looking for because that, you know what, who cares, I'll buy a new one. Right? That was not the case here. Jesus absolutely cared and searched with all of his heart. Amen? Jesus left the 90 and 9 and he came to this fallen planet to come look for us. But it also implies that Jesus is willing to take about all the responsibility to bring a solution. Right? If he's coming to seek and to save that which was lost, he's taking upon himself the burden of responsibility to ensure that we are restored, even though we're in a horrible condition. Right? I mean, if you were to pop the hood of my life, it may look like a lemon. I don't know about you. I got my stuff. And yet Jesus doesn't feel that way. Jesus believes that this expensive errand that he is on is going to be worth it. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Beloved, Jesus didn't just write a check for the price of sin. He literally became the embodiment of my sin and received the wrath of God towards that sin to set me free, to set you free. That's a big difference. He doesn't just say, okay, what do they owe? Like 4,000 you know, units of whatever? All right, here's a check for 4,000. Let's pay that off. That's not what's going on here. Jesus says, whatever they have done and whatever they deserve, address all of that to me so that they can be clothed with my righteousness, so that they can be justified. He received the wrath of God towards sin to set you free. But what does that look like? And what does that teach us about the faith of Jesus? Let's go into that now. 
Imagine you're standing before a holy God and a holy law for just one of your sins. And I'm left with the impression you may be somewhat like me and maybe you've committed maybe more than one sin in your life. Am I correct in that? Okay, well, let's just pick one of them. And please don't verbalize them. I don't want to get anybody in trouble here tonight. Okay, you can keep that to yourself between you and Jesus. But imagine that you're standing before a holy God and a holy law for just one of your sins. And there is no mediator. There is no one to stand between you and the justice that you deserve. How would you be feeling in that moment? What emotions come to your mind? I need verbal feedback this evening. It's okay to participate in church. Very nervous. Very nervous. Who else? Ashamed. Ashamed. Great answer. Anyone else? Terrified. Headache. Yeah, the worst headache you've ever had, right? Helpless. Helpless. Guilt. You can't call in sick for this one, right? This, this is serious, guys. I believe, fully believe, that you would be struck dead in a moment by that understanding. It would be so overwhelming. This happens. People literally get scared to death. It happens, right? I believe that we would be so overwhelmed that it would crush and destroy us. And yet, imagine now the composite weight and guilt of the entire world. For every sin that ever has been committed from the fall of Adam and Eve until the second coming of Jesus Christ, imagine all of that sin, all of that guilt, that shame, that condemnation, the unmingled wrath of Almighty God for all of us. Imagine that amassed into a large pile. And then imagine all of that weight being heaped upon the shoulders of one man at one point in time. This, beloved, is why Jesus declares to the disciples in Matthew chapter 26, as he enters the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his suffering, that my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Remember, you told me how you'd feel for just one of your sins. Imagine bearing the weight of the sin of the world. This is the experience of our champion Jesus. The moment he enters the gate of the Garden of Gethsemane, he comes face to face with that reality. And what he begins to wrestle with internally is a weight that you and I will never understand. And it literally is already beginning to crush out his life. No hand has been laid upon him. No whippings, no scourgings, no spitting in his face. It's just him staring down the gun barrel of the weight of the sin of the world. The disciples in this moment are seeing in Jesus they have never seen before. This man is calm, cool, and collected all the time. Two naked demoniacs run at him in Matthew's account, and Jesus rebukes the demons, and they're seated and clothed in their right mind. A demoniac stands up in a church service and says, What are we to do with you, Jesus? Have you come to torture us before the time? And he rebukes the demon, and the guy is calm and collected. When the boat is, is being rocked by waves in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is asleep on a cushion. Nothing shakes this guy. But in this moment, it literally is as if Jesus is falling apart at the seams, and the disciples do not know what to do. What the text later says is that they will fall asleep because of sorrow. It's so overwhelming to them. They cash out, and they leave this poor man to wrestle with this weight alone. And Jesus in this moment who has many times prayed for them, is now asking for their prayers. I need you to pray for me. Fellas, I need you right now. And they don't give Jesus what he needs. And he suffers alone. In Luke 22, we're told that as he was drawn with them from by the stone's throw, he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me, but nevertheless... Not my will, but yours be done. His humanity is shrinking from this responsibility right now. It's too much for him. And he's begging the Father to change his mind. 
He's pleading with the Father, take this cup from me. And the painful cup that he's referring to here is the same cup that we'll talk about later in the book of Revelation that's called the cup of God's unmingled wrath. It is undiluted. There is no chaser. And Jesus is drinking that thing to the dregs in this moment with no support, with no help, and it is overwhelming him and crushing him inside. And as he asks the Father to change his mind, your face comes into the mind of Jesus. And this is what gives him the intrinsic motivation to say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. His humanity shrinks from this responsibility and says, Father, please, is there any other way? And again, he's reminded of your fate. What will happen if he doesn't do this? Nevertheless, if this is what it's going to take, I'll do it. Jesus is wrestling with a superhuman agony that you and I will never understand. Never understand. Then in Luke chapter 22, God literally has to send an angel from the right hand of the throne down to planet Earth to strengthen and encourage Jesus. Because the implication from Jesus' own words is that he's going to die in that garden if somebody doesn't help him. He won't even make it to the cross. It's so bad. Why else would he tell the disciples he's already at death's doorstep unless he's at death's doorstep? Because the Bible says that God cannot lie. Are you with me today? God sends an angel to cradle the head of Jesus in his bosom, to speak tender words of encouragement to him, reminding him of the promises of God. Do you remember at the baptism that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased? It's still true, Jesus. You're our champion. It's going to be worth it. Do you remember the promise in Isaiah chapter 53 that you will see the labor of your soul and be satisfied? It's still true, Jesus. I know they don't seem to appreciate it right now, but it's going to be worth it. This is the only reason why Jesus can even get up from what he's going through at this stage. In Luke 22, verse 44, In being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The psychological and spiritual agony that Jesus is going through is so intense that physiologically he begins to bleed through his pores. Literally, the life forces are being crushed and pressed out of Jesus at this stage, and his body is freaking out, guys. Ironically, you know what the word Gethsemane means? It's the press. It's a place where they smashed oil out of olives. Jesus is being pressed at this moment. And it's more than he can bear. And were it not again for this angelic intervention, who knows what would have happened at this stage. Jesus is being pressed beyond measure in this moment solely from the weight of your sin and my sin and our neighbor's sin. This is no easy task, beloved. He hasn't even been turned over to the religious leaders and the Romans to be crucified yet, and he's dying already because of the weight of the sin of the world. This is what our sin does, beloved. At least Bob got the benefit of staring at something suffering to realize, maybe I shouldn't keep living like this. Well, you and I do have that benefit, but we need to look upon Calvary to recognize what we're about to do. Are you understanding this evening? This is what our sins cause. Death, suffering, misery, and separation. Jesus is beginning to receive what our sins deserve. And there's a temptation in this moment. You better believe the devil's not giving him a pass at this stage. Hey, hope it works out for you, Jesus. No, 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 no. You better believe the devil's hot, stinky breath is breathing down Jesus' neck, telling him, these people don't appreciate you. 
Where are your disciples, Jesus? Where are his disciples right now? They're sleeping. Leaving the poor man to suffer alone. Jesus, why would you give your life for the world when your closest followers won't even stand up for you when you need it the most? What would you do in that moment? Thankfully, Jesus isn't me because I know what I would do in that moment. Giving your life for people who don't appreciate you is hard. Imagine giving your everything for a world that seemingly will not appreciate it. And yet Jesus seems to feel that this whole risk and venture is still worth it, even though he could walk. Jesus can get up from that garden and walk out and do his own thing, and yet he doesn't. And for a third time, he says, Father, if this cup cannot pass from me, then let your will be done. Jesus is longing for human sympathy in this moment. It would do his heart a lot of good to have Peter, James, or John crawl across that cold gravel and lay a hand on his shoulder and to give him the ministry of presence. They can't tell him it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. But at least we're here. Jesus doesn't get that. Jesus was human, guys. He was divine and human. He had needs. He had emotional needs. And in this moment, he was longing for some form of sympathy and affection, but he gets nothing from us. Nothing. And as he surrenders the third time, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In this moment, Jesus has made a resolute decision. He will save man at any cost to himself. I don't care what it costs. I don't care how much it hurts. Lay it on me, he says. This train will not stop. Jesus will pour out his life to the dregs whether anybody responds or not. He is firmly entrenched at this stage. He has set his face like flint, we're told. And he's going to do it, even if he has to do it alone. But he's not suffering alone. Because Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The Father is suffering right beside his Son. And I'm fully sure of the fact that in that moment there was silence in heaven. No harps are being played. Everyone is watching their champion in the Garden of Gethsemane duking it out with the devil and his flesh. God is suffering right beside His Son, even though Jesus can't feel it because of the darkness that He's going through. But then Jesus gets up, He goes to the entrance of the garden, and He's greeted by a group of brute guards with a bunch of implements that they're not going to need for Jesus. He's a man of peace, swords and clubs and foolishness. And Judas comes up and kisses Jesus and betrays him with a kiss. And as Jesus is wrestling with the stabbing heartbreak of betrayal, in that moment, he musters the unselfish love to refer to this man as friend. Friend. This tells you something about the heart of God. Many of us have betrayed Jesus, if we're honest with ourselves. And he sees you the same way, beloved, as a friend. Some of us in this room have people in our lives right now that we cannot refer to as friend. Because what they did was too much. They went too far. And I just can't. In his strength, you can. Amen? You don't have to let them back into your life to perpetually abuse and violate, but the disposition of your heart can change towards them. And He can set you free from bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. He would love to do that for you tonight. Then Peter has a brilliant idea, and he hacks Malchus's ear off. 
And Jesus says, put your sword in its place, Peter. They're not taking my life. I'm giving myself for them. And I'm giving myself for you. Because my kingdom is not advanced by taking. It's by giving. Then Jesus is given this sham of a trial where the word justice isn't even invited to the conversation. It's a mockery of justice. And the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 52 tells us that in this moment and in this quote-unquote trial, Jesus is literally beaten beyond the point of recognition. You cannot recognize who this man is when they're done with him. It's that brutal. It's that vile. It's that awful. He's flogged twice. Then he's brought before the Jews at this stage, the very people he's come to save, his own people. And they are asked, who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or the one whom you call the king of the Jews? And the response is, we will not have this man's Lord over us. We have no king but Caesar and give us Barabbas. And we think to ourselves, what savage monsters? How could they say such a thing? But we have to come face to face with the reality that every time that you and I choose our pet sins over Jesus, we're saying the exact same thing. I will not have this man as Lord over me. I have no king but Caesar. And give me Barabbas. I'm no better than them. None of us are. All of us deserve to die were it not for the grace of God. But thankfully, we have the grace of God. Amen? Amen. We're without hope if it weren't for Jesus, guys. Absolutely without hope. Then Jesus is nailed to this demonic torture device. He's stripped of his clothing. He's nailed to it. It's heaved in the air and slammed into the hole in the rock that's prepared for it. And in that moment, every nerve and sinew of his body has fire running through it. And yet Jesus never utters a word about his physical pain. It's almost as if it's hardly felt in comparison with the emotional, psychological, and spiritual agony that he's going through in this moment. And that's not to deny the fact that his sufferings were intensely physical. They were. But if you went through what he was going through spiritually, you probably would find that to be hardly felt as well which is saying a lot, because crucifixion is no joke. Then as Jesus is dying for the sins of his apostate nation, people are walking by saying, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross and save yourself. Irony of ironies is precisely because Jesus is the Son of God that he's not coming down from that cross. Then someone who's crucified next to him says, if you're the Son of God, save yourself and us. But what they haven't realized is he's already saving them. They just haven't figured it out yet. And he's being tempted again. Jesus, what are you doing with your life? You're really going to go through this for them? Did you hear what they said, Jesus? They don't care about you. You're wasting your time, man. Move on with your life. And he could, but he submits himself to this. He's being mocked, humiliated, and crucifying for being exactly crucified, for being exactly who he claimed to be, and it's going to cost him everything. And there's only been one constant for Jesus in his 33 and a half years on this earth: the presence and the approval of his Father. Nothing else has been constant for him, and now that's gone. In the experiential mind of Jesus, it's as if the Father is nowhere to be found, and he's left to suffer and die alone. And words come out of the mouth of Jesus that you would never expect to be hearing from somebody who's been in eternal fellowship with God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know who's saying that? God. There is a massive tearing of the Godhead in this moment that Jesus cannot understand. 
He is receiving the wrath of God towards sin, and it's so overwhelming to him that he can't see through the darkness and realize that God is with him. He can't see it. It's that bad. And Satan has put this cloud of darkness in the mind of Jesus that's impenetrable. He cannot see through the portals of this gnarly and terrible experience. And to make matters worse, it looks like midnight even though it's noonday. Because even the sun refuses to shine as the Son of Glory is being crucified for humanity. I won't have time to go into Psalm 22 on the faith of Jesus, but um, I would encourage you to read Psalm 22 because Jesus quoted that when He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it seems as though He's being neglected and abandoned, but there's a time in the middle of that psalm where He says, You have heard me. And then the psalm ends with triumph. So to the enemies of Jesus at the cross, it seems as though He's admitting defeat, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus isn't just claiming the first part of that psalm. He's claiming the end that ends in victory. Amen? The faith of Jesus pierces through the darkness and rests in the Father's love even though he can't feel it. The faith of Jesus. But we're told in Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 3 that Jesus is treading the winepress alone and of the peoples there was none with him. And you know why? Because there's times that you and I tread the winepress alone. And there's no one with us. And Jesus chose to enter into our sufferings. We'll talk about that in a later meeting. Timothy Keller says it this way, Jesus was truly abandoned so that you will only feel abandoned. Jesus felt an isolation and separation that you will never have to deal with because you have his presence available in any challenge you go through. He didn't have that. And he did that for you and for me. So what is it that keeps Jesus going through all this madness? It's you. It's you. Jesus cannot bear the thought of losing you. It is unthinkable to him. He would rather cease to exist for eternity than for you to not have a chance to be saved, beloved. That's the truth as it is in Jesus. In his mind, Jesus is fully convinced that when he breathes his last breath at this stage, it's over. He can't see through the portals of the tomb at this stage. He told people he'd be resurrected in three days, but in this moment, he can't feel that. It is so bad and so dark that when he breathes his last breath, it is over and forever. And he will never see the light of day again. He will never see the Father again. And even if this plan of salvation does work and you're saved, he won't be there to see it. This is what's going through Jesus' mind at this stage. And in that context, John chapter 13 and verse 1 tells us that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Beloved, Jesus truly loved you to the end, to the end of himself. He could not give an ounce more than he gave. And in his mind, when he gives all, it's literally all. Not, I'll wake up in three days, well-rested, and go about my business. He literally gave to the end, knowing in his mind, he'll never see anything after that. Why? Because the faith of Jesus is not just piercing through the darkness and resting in his Father's love. It's also him seeing something in you that you don't even see in yourself. Jesus sees something of value in you. That's why he came to seek and to save you, beloved. And Jesus is choosing to treat you based upon what you could be, not based upon what you are right now. The goodness of God is shown to us in our brokenness and depravity. The faith of Jesus sees something of value in you. And this is why it says in Revelation chapter 12, in response to the cross event, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of our Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who has accused them before our God day and night has been cast down and say hallelujah this evening. And they overcame them by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. And you know why? Because the lives that they were living led to death, and they found something better in the faith of Jesus. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. 
He had some means of access back and forth to heaven, but at the cross event, all of heaven was fully convinced at that stage that your arguments have lost all weight and you are not welcome here. Their minds have been made up in this whole great cosmic conflict we talked about last night. The cross event settled it for everybody but this planet. And the question is, what are you going to do based upon what you've heard today? Who will you pledge allegiance to? Who will you give your life to? That's the question. Whose case will we believe? So if you're wondering if God can accept you today, Calvary says, yes, yes and amen. Ephesians 1 tells us that you are accepted in the beloved, current tense. Yes, your life may be a mess. Yes, you may have made mistakes. Jesus sees something of you even in that state, and that's why he paid the price. And it wasn't just Jesus, by the way. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us that God shows his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ came to die for the ungodly. Jesus didn't come to convince the Father to love you. It was because the Father loved you that he sent Jesus, and that was before you got anything right. That was before you got your life together. And you know what that tells me? I don't have to get my life together before coming to Jesus. I need to come to Jesus and he will get my life together. Amen? That's how this works, beloved. Don't believe the lies of the devil. You are accepted in the beloved today. Tonight, in this very moment, Jeremiah 31 and verse 3, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. The cross of Christ is like a magnet of grace. John chapter 12 and verse 32, Jesus says, I, if I'm be lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. But that word peoples is supplied. It's much bigger than that, beloved. The original language reads, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all to myself. The unfallen angels, the unfallen world, all are being drawn to Jesus through the cross of Calvary. And he went through all of this because he saw in you a pearl of great price. Jesus sees a value in you that you don't even see in yourself, and he's asking you to respond by placing your faith in him. Guys, Jesus already has faith in you. That's why he gave his life for you. But will you place your faith in him? That's the question. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, and now we know why. It's amazing. He says, for it's the power of God is what draws us and keeps us to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. Jesus is overcoming and and belief in humanity. It's overcoming faith and his faith in humanity from faith to faith, our reciprocating faith in Him, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And that's quoting from Habakkuk. That's actually the verse that saved Martin Luther's Christian experience. From legalism and bondage to God loves and accepts me. It was that verse. But it reads, the just shall live by His faith. It's by the faith of Jesus. When we encounter the faith of Jesus, we now have a reason to place our faith in Jesus. Amen? And that's how it works. That's how it works, beloved. So why did he do it? Why would Jesus go through all this? I remember one of my teachers at the Bible college I went to was telling testimony and talking about the faith of Jesus. And he asked an important question. Why would Jesus choose to give his life for people and believe in people that he knows good and well aren't going to respond? You ever wondered about that? Why would Jesus choose to give himself, give of himself for people that he knows will not respond? And he said one of the most profound things I've ever heard in my life. He says, what God knows doesn't change who he is. And love believes all things. It hopes all things and it bears all things. Beloved, even if you don't believe in Jesus tonight, the good news is he believes in you. Jesus believes in you. He sees something in you that you do not see in yourself. That's the faith of Jesus. But what are we going to do with that? That's the question. I want to close with the story of my friends, Chuck and Millie. I used to do Bible work. I used to give community Bible studies. As some of you are receiving Bible studies from my students who are doing Bible work, same idea. I was doing Bible work in Crossville, Tennessee. And Chuck and Millie went to my church 
Chuck actually used to be a church administrator some years ago, but he was telling the story. He's preaching a sermon called A Love Relationship with Jesus. By the way, I'll sanitize my hands before I shake your hands in the back. I'm not sick. I'm just crying because this is like hard and stuff. You know, the gospel's pretty heavy stuff. Um, but Chuck tells the story in this sermon, A Love Relationship with Jesus, about him and his wife. It wasn't his wife at this stage. Chuck was going to a college in Southern California. It's a great place to go to college. I'm sure it was beautiful. And... He'd been courting, you know, for a while, and he finally musters the guts to tell her. And he says, Millie, they're in the car together. He says, Millie, I love you. And her response was, well, I don't love you. Gunned him down, boy. Double barrel shotgun, gunned him down. But as it says in Isaiah chapter 42, he would not fail nor be discouraged. Amen? Amen. There's a fine line, fellas. There's a fine line there between creepy and romantic. And it usually becomes romantic after the girl comes around. It's creepy until then. And it's a really hard place to be. But anyway, in that moment, she says, I don't love you. But Chuck keeps loving her. They keep dating. And one day he goes to pick her up from the dormitory in the lobby. Because she's also going to college at this stage. She's studying nursing. He's studying to be a pastor. And she says, Chuck, we need to talk. Oh, that's when the butterflies come, right, fellas? Oh, dear. She pulls him into a side room and she wraps her arms around him and says, Chuck, I love you. I love you. What are you going to do with my love? You know what he said? Marry it. And they've been married for 60-something years in ministry together. Amen? Amen. Beloved, you've seen that God loves you this evening. Am I right in that? Yes. Well, here's my question to you. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with his love? You're going to sign up for keeps? Or we're going to keep toying with his heart? I believe Jesus deserves an answer this evening. And as people are beginning to pass the cards to you, it's just an appeal card, an opportunity for you to respond to what you've been hearing. Uh, we've raised our hands the last two nights. But tonight I want you to look at this card that's going to be given to you that just gives you an opportunity to respond to the faith of Jesus to respond to Jesus uh, and His faith in you. So as you get the cards, uh, if you need a pen, raise your hand. There should be pens in the pew in front of you, uh, next to like where the tithe envelopes are and stuff. If you need a pen, make sure you talk to somebody. We'll make sure we get you taken care of. Um, as they're handing out the cards, they also have pens with them. I want to make sure you have access to this as we begin this process of um, having access to these We've seen that Jesus loves us this evening, and now is our opportunity to respond as Chuck did. What are you going to do with my love is the question. Now's our chance to respond. So as you've got your cards here, here's the first option for you to respond tonight. That I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and my personal Savior. If that's you tonight, I want you to check that box. I repent of my sins, the second box here, and believe that God forgives me and gives me salvation as a free gift I believe that, that this is a free gift of grace, that God loves me, I repent of my sins, and I believe that God can indeed forgive me. No matter where I've been or what I've done, I believe that. You can check that box if that's you. You can check more than one if that's true for you. Number three, I choose to surrender my life to Jesus, and I desire to live my life according to His Word. Jesus, if you're going to give all for me, the least I can do is give all for you. If that's you tonight, I invite you to check that box. Number four, I want to rededicate my life to Jesus today. Check the ones that are the most true to your story. Maybe you're in a situation where you've never accepted Jesus. You don't need to check that box. But if you have given your life to Jesus and you realize that maybe my life isn't quite where it used to be, and I realize that God is calling me home tonight, check that box. I'm rededicating my life to Jesus. And lastly, I have a prayer request. And you can put that on the back of the card. If there's something that you'd like to have prayer for, something in specific, uh, we're happy to pray for you. We're a praying church. We love our community. We would be happy to bring these petitions into the presence of God. By the way, God would love to hear from you, by the way. Amen? We believe in the priesthood of all believers. We believe that you can pray to Jesus directly. We fully believe that. But if you would like for the church to be praying for you as well, we're happy to do that. Fill out that box or check that box. And then just put your name and a way to follow up with you, your email and phone and so forth. If you've got your, little, uh, your registration number that's on your key card and your address, uh, when people make decisions like this, we take it seriously. 
Um, we want to make sure that people have the community and the support that they need. And so if you'd like help in knowing where to go after making this decision, I want you to write that on this card. What's my next step? Just write, what's my next step? And we're happy to follow up with you and help you with that. Uh, we fully believe in the process of discipleship and nurturing people in their relationship with Jesus. So if you want to know more, uh, we're happy to help you. What is my next step? Write that on your card, and someone will be in contact with you soon uh, to help you through that process. But I want to ask you a question this evening. Has this made sense, yes or no? Yes. yes. Then, beloved, I believe that this is one of the most important things that we will ever hear in our lives. And it's not because I'm up front. I heard somebody share this message seven years ago walking through the sufferings of Jesus Christ in a way that radically changed my life. And I made a vow on July 5th, 2014, I will never commit the sin of not preaching that ever again. It changed me deeply. It was just a simple preaching of the cross of Christ. Not a bunch of theorizing, not a bunch of theological nuance. They just told the story and it changed my life. And beloved, if you know people who need to hear this message, then share it with them. Invite them to come out to these meetings and share those files with them, okay? But they're going to find more of a blessing being in this building and listening from afar, but they can still get a blessing that way. But we would love to see people here to experience what you experienced tonight, amen? This is a gift that's worthy of being shared. People will be coming on the outside part of the pews now to pick up these cards. They've got a little bucket. You can drop those in. Uh, just pass it towards the outside, towards the outer walls, and they'll pick up those cards from you to be able to turn those in. Um, we want to make sure that we don't let anybody fall through the cracks before we close out. So just go ahead and turn those cards uh, towards the outside. Uh, go ahead and start picking those up. And I want to close the prayer, and then we'll be able to let you guys go. So let's pray. Sweet Jesus, thank you for loving us, for seeing something in us that we don't even see in ourselves. And we want to pray this evening, Lord, that you would forgive our sins, cover them with the blood of Jesus, fill us with your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that you would transform us that you would change us by your grace, that you would help us to know what that next step looks like. Lord, we want to know you more. We sang that tonight and we mean it with all of our hearts. And we thank you for believing in us, even though many times we have not believed in you. We love you and we thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.